Welcome, one and all, to the first episode of this new mini-series, My Climate Story, a University of Leeds podcast where we'll get to meet inspiring alumni from around the world who are working their socks off to combat the climate crisis. My name is Simon Moore. I'm a communications officer here at the University of Leeds and an administrator for the community project Climate Action Leeds. I've got this gig because I'm also a Leeds alumni, or alumnus, I think it should say. I studied biology, I clearly didn't do Latin, and I graduated in 2014. Now I dedicate my work and some of my spare time to fighting to stop climate change, or at least stop it getting much worse. Shortly, I'll be joined by two special guests who are also Leeds alumni for today's episode, where we'll be focusing on sustainable fashion and business in the lead up to COP26 in November. But first, why Leeds? Isn't climate change a global issue, I hear you ask? Well, yes, everywhere on earth is going to have to change drastically. But Leeds and this university are actually shining beacons to the world. Leeds had the first UK Climate Commission, a cross-sector partnership which has now been replicated across the country. Our research was used to underpin the UK government's 2050 net zero target. And we have multiple authors who contribute to reports from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, the number one authority on climate. We're not just bragging here, we live and breathe this stuff. So why now? Well, COP26 is scheduled for this November in Glasgow. It's the latest gathering of world leaders where they'll negotiate on how we tackle this global issue together. The recent report from the IPCC gave us a code red warning for humanity that we must act now or face dire consequences in our own lifetimes. So that's where we're at, an important moment in the history of our species. Blimey. But we're all in this together, and there's some incredible work going on to ensure we stop that temperature dial from rising much further. Thank you for being here with us for the first episode of My Climate Story, and thanks for everything you're doing to tackle the climate crisis. I promise we'll be more upbeat from here. I just wanted to set the scene, get everyone on the same page. Now, I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined by two inspiring Leeds alumni who are going to be sharing their climate stories with us. So we have Rupert Ganguly, who graduated from Leeds with an MSc in textile management in 2001. Rupert is the founder of Inclusive Trade, connecting artisan brands with consumers who want to make ethical and sustainable lifestyle choices. Some of you may have even read about Rupert's work in last year's alumni magazine. Thanks for joining us, Rupert. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Adam Savitz, who graduated in environmental science in 2003 and gained a master's in environment and business the following year. Adam recently joined Johnson Controls International, the smart buildings company, as sustainability director for Europe, Middle East, Africa and Latin America. And he was formerly managing director at Zinteo, who work with business leaders to drive growth that works with and not against nature. Thanks, Adam. Great to be here, Simon. 
so we'd like to kind of get get to know you both to, to begin with do you want to tell us a bit about what what you do rupa at inclusive trade what what do you do there what's your role at the organization um hi so in fact inclusive trade it's uh to start with uh, my background i mean the reason why i do what i do also is because um a large part of my life i've spent running development projects around the world um as part of the united nations uh, agency the international trade center which was based in geneva and uh subsequently worked with loads of um small businesses and manufacturers around the world always in the um in the supply chain or the value chain of textiles and fashion um working on well sustainability across a couple of um channels including cross border trade but also in the production um stream so inclusive trade sort of was born out of that interest passion and ambition to be able to take a lot of these amazing stories and amazing products that uh are made sustainably or ethically and are having such a large impact positively on the on lives of people as well as their communities and environment um really to the consumers to consumers and businesses across the world so we can all start consuming and uh working and living in a more sustainable manner so essentially that's the mandate of inclusive trade to have a positive impact at the core of everything we consume use and uh live with and in doing that it's uh well it's a digital online platform and it supports both b2c and b2b so yeah that in a nutshell is what inclusive trade is all about that's brilliant Th- thanks so much uh, adam what about yourself at, at johnson controls i believe you you just just starting out there in that new world yeah so thank you simon um great opportunity to really work on 40 percent of all emissions that we have in the world come from the built environment uh we have huge huge aspirations by 2030 40 and 50 to really get to net zero and beyond and it is you know 40 percent of emissions that we really need to kind of tackle so how do we go about improving energy efficiency in the built environment everything from refrigeration to office buildings but equally this is a really kind of you know interesting time for how we use buildings as people around the world are either working from home or going back into offices what does it mean for kind of the built environment from schools and hospitals and sports stadiums and really how are all of these um these these bricks and mortar effectively going to become smart going to be um have technology and software built inside them that allow us to to really kind of track and reduce emissions all of the technology it's available we have it we have the money we have the solutions the question is how do we affect behavior change and how do we implement over the next few years not you know tens of years ways to actually reduce emissions in in that built environment and truly try and tackle um, 40% of those emissions. Um, And that's something which is a massive challenge and one that I'm excited to kind of take on. Uh, My whole career since I left Leeds has really been working in the sustainability and climate change arena, uh, originally as an ESG analyst before everyone became an ESG analyst. Um, and then with PricewaterhouseCoopers working with companies on their first sort of sustainability strategies in the UK and the US uh, before uh, joining Zinteo about six years ago, where I've worked um, exclusively with corporate leaders on facing some of the biggest systemic challenges that exist in their worlds, um, both in uh, Europe and India. So uh, this is the next step on, in, in my journey. 
and really something that you know with with scale capital technology and software i think we can uh, tackle as something you know we have to there is no time that's fantastic and i i guess i'm always interested to know what sort of motivates people and what what led you to to be putting all of your energy into the, the kind of career paths that that you've chosen so rupo do you want to just talk a bit about your what, what what drives you? Yeah, sure. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, clothing, uh, and I mean, I did my master's in textile management so many years ago that I sometimes feel a bit like a dinosaur now. Uh, and often some of the stuff that we studied then was all very relevant, all very brilliant. But, um, you know, as time goes by, you often think, well, you know, we were just looking at productivity. We were looking at improvement of how one could get products out faster and better. But we just, no one thought about actually, you know, what that's doing to everything around you. And do you actually need all that stuff? And if you have it, really, do you use it responsibly? And and those questions were all sort of too fluffy and soft. And no one thought about those things before. What has happened is that now we're sort of going backwards in time and trying to redo or undo things that we did in such a big rush to get everything right. Um and the more you did that, sort of, you know, all of us have been a part of kind of, I would say, the problem, but we all kind of need, a, need to be a part of the solution. And often we just need to go back and think about, right, what could we have done right to start with? And while we can't change necessarily, and I think what Adam said as well, like there are all these, you know, emissions that today, how are we going to get to those targets and how are we going to actually be able to change the, the, the sort of things that we've done in the past? So for me, it's really been a journey of 20 years, if you like, where, you know, starting off in some of the markets in, in, in India, where I grew up to, you know, going and working at the UN and then, then working with loads of small communities around the world. There's so many good practices that we don't actually talk about, so many sort of, um, things that we have from the traditional and the cultural approach, but, it just gets lost, right? You just become corporatized. You start doing things the way factories want you to do. And I, I mean, it just felt like such a big shame. So for me, I think a large part of it was sort of like saying, hey, you know what? We can actually get, um, you know, we can do trade. We can actually get the profits you're talking about, but you can do it ethically and you can do it in a way where the impact actually adds to a bigger whole, if you like. So that was sort of this mad passion I had in saying that, well, you know, we can actually sell clothes and we can still wear clothes and we can still sort of have a great fashion industry, but, you know, it can be done ethically. So I think that's basically what was my kind of like, how can I do this so that every single thing that you consume can have positive impact? So that was sort of what literally drove me and still drives me every single day to to kind of find that um, magic portion if you like and uh, luckily though I don't have to do it by myself yeah Rupa I think it's fascinating I mean it's about unlocking sometimes um, a lot of it is from a mindset perspective you know uh, and a lot of it in the last 20 years is technology um, I tell the story you know September 2000, I sat in a computer room at Leeds University where I used the computer really for the first time. I'd done all my A-levels and everything via encyclopedia and drawing. Um, and in that short sort of 21 years, um, it's been an absolutely insane um, level of technological innovation. So I have a, um, a real kind of belief. Yes, there are unintended consequences for sure. Uh, and there will be issues related to kind of big tech and everything that's coming. Um, but I, I'm evangelical to an extent with the fact that the solutions are there 
for some of these big challenges we have. And, and a lot of the time it's about opening, opening people's eyes to the reality of, of what is there. And also thinking about it um, and what we've seen in kind of the last sort of two decades is the move to collaborative action. Thinking through the fact that all of these challenges we have, these sort of wicked problems that are related to climate change or to water or to food or to plastic waste, they're all interconnected. And for us, it's, it's about trying to kind of show that system and show people that it, the solution to that challenge that they have is not necessarily the thing they see at the top in front of them. But maybe down the supply chain, as we're experiencing now um, here in the UK with, with the supply chain sy- systemic challenges. Um, and so it's really about unlocking that and, sh- and kind of you know, impacting um, in a way that you know, tries to kind of change the whole system. Because what companies, particularly that I've worked with over the last couple of decades, have realized is they cannot do it by themselves. They have to work with governments, with academia, with NGOs. Gone are the days where the likes of Greenpeace and others were really, you know, knocking down the door of companies. And actually now you see WWF and Greenpeace and others working alongside companies in a much more kind of collaborative way and getting to places quicker, faster and better because of that. And so what has inspired me over this time is to try and mix that kind of technology the systems-based approach and the collaboration approach to say, well, actually, if we bring these people together who have never met before in their lives, but they have the answers and we can work kind of collaboratively on the solutions, actually find the people who have the money, find the people who have the technology, allow the governments and others to kind of come in. Um, that's the way you start to unlock stuff. And, and really, you know, companies have woken up to that you know, years ago. Um, and now it's an opportunity for them to see, well, what type of skills do I need as an organization to really then go out and not just sell, you know, widgets to this person or services to this person, but how do I work alongside my customers, alongside my partners to really collaboratively come up with solutions that transform both themselves, but also the environment that they work within. And that's the thing that kind of gets my juices flowing. <laughs> That's great. And you both touched on your time at the university briefly there. I'd, I'd, it'd be great to hear kind of, I think you're actually at at the University of Leeds around the same time. You might have overlapped a little bit. Um, it'd be great to hear, I guess, the kind of doors that that opened for you and the kind of, um, you know, what, what, what did you learn during that time that, that helped, helped move you into the careers that, that you're both in now? Yeah, I love geography at school. It came very easy to me. Um, I actually, is a great lesson for everyone, I didn't get the A-levels I wanted. Um, I was going to do geography at Leeds, um, and my brother did after me. Um, but uh, a head teacher at my school had already spoken with Leeds University and got me on environmental science. I never really knew what that was, but you know, my parents were like, you're going. So I went. <laughs> um, and... That gave me the opportunity to explore atmospheric science. Um, the, the, what is climate change? What's the science behind water and waste and all these various things? And I got to a stage, you know, coming towards the end of my first, uh, my three years. And so it got, got me kind of thinking and then I was thinking, well, well what am I going to do with this degree? Um, so, so whilst that process was going on, the, the opportunity to, to take uh, one more year uh, and do a master's, which is now the sustainability master's at Leeds. Um, 
I think I was one of the early guinea pigs of that. And one of the key points in that, in that master's program, was a consultant. I can't remember her name uh, or what the consultancy was, but they came in and they did a course for, for one of the, the modules on sort of sustainability consulting. And they, they set us this um, pharmaceutical challenge thing. Um, and she, uh, during that process, talked to us about various Yahoo groups that you could sign up to about um, you know sustainability and jobs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I did, and I happened to get a two-week internship off that, and it all went from there. Um, so Leeds, you know, whether by luck or not, um, really kind of was you know, pivotal in, in terms of building both my scientific understanding of the issues which I talk about today, but also then how does that relate to the business world? And then actually practically got me my first internship where I stayed for, for three and a half years. That's, that's, that's great to hear. And Rupa, I don't think you were at Leeds as many years as Adam, but what, what, was, the, what was the impact on you? No, but it was, so my, my story is in many ways, uh, I, uh, similar, but in many ways, very, very different in terms of the pathway, because, um, I'm actually a graduate of economics. I studied in India. I also had then, I used to run a little, um, huh, a tiny little business while I was doing my, uh, graduate uh, degree. And that was in textiles. And that sort of got me excited in textiles. And funnily enough, way back in the late nineties, um, you know, nobody really talked about, uh, sustainability as much in an open way, but you always had this culture of saying, right, this is leftover. How do we use it? And that was kind of how I got into using leftover pieces of fabric at this, um, wholesale market that I used to walk through. But that piqued my interest in textiles. And then I did a textiles design degree in India, um, which is a master's at the National Institute uh, in Delhi. And then that led me to get a scholarship to Leeds because I was so fascinated by a, a study visit I came for to in 99 to, to the UK and visited Leeds um, University. And looking at just the facilities and all the amazing uh, you know, technology. And in those days, you know, the man-made fibers building, which was then the man-made fibers building and all the amazing, uh, stuff in there. I was just like, wow, there's so much to learn here. And there's so much to know about how you manage these processes because I'd learned about the fabrics. I'd learned about textiles. I'd done sort of business, but it's a different thing to manage it internationally. And how do you actually make the most of it? So for me, I then applied to come here for the textiles management, um, MSC and got in. Uh, I was very fortunate to actually be one of the students also to get a scholarship, which was great for me because otherwise coming from India at that time would have been very, very, very difficult. But what Leeds did really, I still remember though, when I first landed there at the, at the, uh, at the bus, the coach station, because I took a coach up from Heathrow. And it was a, it was a horrible, rainy, cold night. And this was in September, as you can imagine, up in Leeds. And I was like, I can't believe I've just done this. Seriously, why am I here? And, um, and, you know, and then basically I went to my university accommodation. And the next day when I went into the university, literally, I was like, well, this is why I'm here. And then every single conversation, um, every single teacher, every single professor, then we had these guest lecturers who came in from, in those days, the textiles intelligence unit, as well as someone who came in, again, was a consulting firm, if I'm not mistaken, who came and presented about international trade. And in those days, you had the agreement on textiles and clothing because you had quotas that that govern trade across the world. And it was just fascinating for me to learn all of that. 
Funnily enough, I sat there and wrote a paper, which I then, well, I wrote a paper. I was in my halls or sort of residence and I, and I presented and wrote a white paper that I sent to the WTO for their comments on um, what would happen if China joined the WTO and China did join the WTO after that, shortly after that. All of that sort of opened up an entirely different world for me, which I hadn't even thought. I thought I would just sort of join a textile company, work there, and then, you know, make it all happen there. But instead of that, this whole gamut of international trade opened up. And then I sat for the international trade classes and took extra classes at Leeds while I was there, um, sitting at the clusters or sitting in the uh, in the center of excellence that you had over there. And it was just all of that, which, you know, was just sort of absorbing it like a sponge, at which point in time, um, I was offered a, a, an internship at the WTO. And that sort of started my entire career in textiles and international trade, really. So, you know, going from sort of something that was in the markets, literally working on fabrics and uh, things like that, um, moving into the area of trade and development and sustainability that I today work in and have been for the last 20 years was all because of that one year. While, you know, for Adam, it had been a number of years. For me, it was literally that one year and it was actually a nine month program. So in fact, in nine months, Leeds pretty much managed to change my life uh, around and open it up to the sort of doors that I have today. So yeah, I mean, again, always very, very sort of grateful for the time at Leeds and my and always happy to give back to Leeds. That's great to hear. And I think, yeah, I mean, I can sort of echo from my own experiences as well that there's something about being at university, whether it's kind of being part of societies or just the different friends you meet on different courses and all all the different guests that come in on, on courses where you you can just have those moments where suddenly it's like a door opens to, to a whole new kind of avenue that you, you'd never considered. Uh, and actually, if you follow that, it can take you somewhere you, you kind of never dream of, really. Um, I'm interested, you, you talked a lot about kind of sustainable sustainable fashion um and and actually uh of interest I'm, I'm not sure if you saw in the last month the university's just just kind of created an, an an institute for textiles and color at the university so it's this area obviously with the history of um kind of clothes and manufacturing in leeds you know it's, st- it's still an area of uh kind of great interest and, and, and strength at the university i'd be interested if you could kind of paint as a picture, Rupert, of what what you think a kind of sustainable fashion brand would be like, what they would do, and I guess what they need to do differently. What in five or ten years' time, what what would be a kind of perfect exemplar of of what these brands need to be doing? I think something that Adam said before, like um, I think that's basically what it is. It's about collaboration, and I think there's so much about sort of learning from different um, streams and collaborating with different entities. And I think that's at the core of sustainability because redoing or trying to replicate something that's already done to start with just doesn't make sense. It's about trying to find where the best use of time, energy and effort goes in. Uh, and so I think that's sort of being, let's say, let's just put that as the foundation. And then if you think about a fashion brand, what is it actually trying to achieve? At the end of the day, you know, clothing is one of our basic needs. And uh, unless you have a virtual avatar, which again, there's this whole discussion today about 3D and, you know, that's a different story. But today as humans, we're always going to consume some level of clothing right um for a fashion brand i think today we you have the today we have the opportunity of starting 
at with a sort of a clean slate if you're going to start today if you're going to start a fashion brand today or if you're looking at kind of working towards a sustainable thing you want to embed it in the very core of your um of the of the mandate of the being of that brand the values of that brand because i think where the big problem lies is when you have to sort of deal with legacy and change things around right so for a brand that's sort of looking for the next 5 to 10 years i think a couple of things become so critical and and i and i think academia plays such a big role the fact that leads has always always been a front runner in uh whether it was just the center of excellence and today as you say this amazing um you know center with uh, textile uh, color and 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 design and i think it has to do with let's put it into three different pots one would be let's say the environment that you know the environment that you are operating in but also the environment around us so in terms of what happens to everything that we use or the process that we are using to actually create something i think that needs to become a core component of the thought process of a design that one actually designs a product um so brand today a lot of actually very sustainable brands or or brands that have uh good messaging are really trying to bring that into the process of saying well this is what our environment looks like and then the second part of it of course is in fact the um the way in which you know the the consumption of that particular product so it's not just the process or the production it's about the consumption of it as well and i love to sort of link things to the sdgs the sustainable development goals of the united nations because you actually have a gamut of things that we can sort of refer to and one of them is actually about sustainable production and consumption and i think they go so closely hand in hand so the second pot is very much about the consumption process and educating customers or consumers on how to best use the product in a in a sustainable way now whether that means labeling it and of course there are things like of course regulatory issues which come along and there's regulation but a brand in its own ethos if you can make a consumer fall in love with that piece or fall in love with that product um you know you're more likely to actually keep that for life because you wouldn't you know you would dread losing it because you just love it so much and then i think the third part of it finally is that indeed there are things that are going to there's going to be waste there is going to be some level of waste there's going to be some stuff that we're going to have to um either dispose or we have to find different ways of how you might be able to reuse it and i think the process the the consumption and the potential waste or re- reduction of that waste all need to form um you know a part of the process of of the brand in itself the values of the brand and while we're talking about it in a very sort of technical way for a consumer you want to make it emotional you really really have got to get that message across so that people understand that they have a huge role to play in the whole process so i think for a brand going forward um to make all of this happen like you know to stick these pieces together there's there's what we would like to call technology today right you've got technology which can bring a lot of what we thought manually was not possible uh together in a much closer you know in a, in a in a sort of shorter period of time and definitely in a more cost effective way as well so i think technology is probably the little glue maybe that sticks it all together but the process the consumption and the waste i think have got to form the core sort of the soul of the brand if you like yeah it's one of those challenges yeah rupert i mean it's one of those kind of perennial challenges the elephant in the room is that fashion is seasonal so every so often or every quarter you get a new line and therefore mm-hmm. if you look at you know some of the fast fashion brands they're bringing out 12 lines a year sort of thing so the whole sustainable consumption question sits within that and where are those materials coming from and all of the inputs that go into those 
um, materials makes it very hard. And so the kind of the, the move to kind of more circular models uh, or renting of kind of clothing um, is certainly kind of come in. And that's something that you know, most major fashion brands uh, around the world um, from your PVH to Nikes of this world are all kind of focusing their attention on because how are they kind of, what are the input materials that they're using? How do they reduce um, the cost of, of making those goods? And then also the kind of the take back, which is going to be kind of, you know, the biggest challenge is a lot of, um, you know, cheap, should we say, kind of clothing mm. and fashion is, you know, is just goes straight to waste. So um, there's huge kind of behavioral change pieces there. It's, it's the classic case of, you know, you have, you know, air conditioning in a, in a building and someone is too cold. So they open the window rather than let the system kind of like reduce the temperature. And so unfortunately, uh, the irrational human being plays a massive part in a lot of what we're trying to talk about, whether that be from, you know, labeling, which is kind of on the, you know, on the minds of many corporations, both in food and in fashion around the world. But how do we as humans engage with those labels and understand what they actually mean um, and actually then affect our behavior on the back of it? So even if we have the best technology in the world, we have the best sustainable solutions, if the human doesn't engage with it in the right way, then um, or doesn't recycle their can at the end of the day when they've got recycling outside their house, um, then what are we kind of going to do about it? And I think that that just makes these systemic challenges that Rupert just mentioned. And there's you know, tons of other things in labor rights, human rights in the supply chain and, and, you know, how you make denim and all of this kind of other stuff. So every, every industry you look at has their material challenges, both in their own business and outside that they're trying to kind of tackle. Um, and that just makes kind of day-to-day working in this space quite fascinating. To be but you know what I was going to say to that, uh, if I may, one of the things in exactly the labeling thing, and, and I feel like uh, one of the problems we have in the textiles and at least in this industry is that it's so technical that, you know, you and me as a consumer, unless you've had some background in textiles, you understand what that means. It's almost impossible to understand why, you know, what do you, why, why should you bother? What does that even mean? But I think what's interesting and, and some brands have started to do it now is to, you know, you've done your regulatory requirement and you've put your labels on because you have to do that for, to make sure that you know what the fiber is, you know what the wash care label is. But they're actually stamping on things using, for example, laser technology and stuff. So you're not actually using dyes or bleaches and whatnot, but stamping on an actual normal human English language, like, or whichever language, maybe Spanish, Italian, but in normal community, you know, community speak if you like and saying I am made from this and wash me at this and you know actually if you do this I will stay longer with you and I will be the love of your life and you know things like that I mean it's just about trying to find this is exactly it isn't it it's about the behavioral change of consumers and and I think it's the same way in which you understand something and the ease of understanding the ease of wanting to be a part of the process and keeping that I think that communication piece is still missing and unfortunately the food industry has in fact done quite a, a good job in many cases I think in in especially sort of you know making sure that we actually know what's organic and making us want it more than just saying it's the right thing to do. I think clothing industry seriously has got still a long way to go because it's not there yet we're not I think the clothing industry just has such a fragmented value chain with uh with the with the Without the need to to mention everything that, you know, people just are left in the dark and you you have half the story or not even half the story. And often that's the problem where you don't know everything about it. 
So I think that is a huge issue. Yeah, so that brings in a good question, Rupert, whether it's the, whose responsibility is it to make that change? Is it okay for companies to um, reduce their salt content in their products to over time, you know, allow consumers to eat less salt, less sugar in their products? That's something that has been going on for a while quite successfully in changing the tastes of the population. Um, or is it the consumer that should be demanding this? Or is it the investors that should be demanding this? Or is it even government's role um, to actually mandate some of these things? So um, there is no answer. Um, so I think there's there's a big challenge for, for technology and for companies and for governments and, and every stakeholder in the system over the next few years. We don't have time. I mean, literally 2030, we've got to decarbonize half of Europe and they've already, you know, started planning the Olympics for 2032. So we've got to do loads of stuff in a very, very short period of time. And so actually, you know, we have to potentially think about the fact that there will be things that we might have to give up, um, that we might not be able to live um, in the ways that we kind of want to live um, or equally try and find, you know, solutions that allow us to do so. I think it's it's interesting, isn't it, that the kind of intricacies between what the the decisions of the business the consumer's ability to kind of put pressure on the business or to kind of vote with you know the things they buy they buy off them and then obviously the government and the kind of the the regulators that 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 set the rules and it's i, I find it a really interesting balance that you know the, there's no single there's no single route that will that will solve the 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 challenges we face but it it it's almost about as an individual where where can i best apply pressure uh, where can i kind of have have the most impact um in in, in various different ways um, i just want to shift us now a little bit we 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 all know cop 26 is on the very near horizon um i just wondered this is a kind of in a sense a sort of climax moment where we're kind of galvanizing world leaders uh, for, for, for stronger ambition, stronger commitment and, and action on the climate crisis. I'd be interested from, from both of your kind of perspectives, what, what COP26 kind of means to you, what, what your hopes are for it and, and whether or not you plan to be involved at all. Yeah, I think um, it's it's great that we actually have this. Time to start with, I'd say that you know bringing people together and and being able to discuss climate in a collaborative manner. For me, I mean, there's a lot, and I could talk endlessly about it. So I'll just pick one key thing for me that I think is uh, crucial, and I'd love to see. And for me, that is actually about collaboration, because in fact, there's at the end of the day conferences, events, uh, you know, agreements or any kind of sort of session like that is great in what it brings out at that point in time. And the fact that we are all coming together to talk about the goals and to make sure that, okay, we all make some pledges and commitments. But at the end of the day, I think it's, it's about what happens post that event. And for me, I want to pick up on that point, which is about I would like to, for me, a successful COP26 event would be about the collaborations that have come out of it. But I mean, committed collaborations. And you want to really see that, okay, uh, and it's not just about collaborations between governments, because yes, governments may agree on things, as we said before. But the point is more about making sure that we have 
different segments of society, like, for example, the public-private partnerships and, you know, or the non-profit organizations that, as, as Adam said before, now sit at the table rather than, you know, break windows and doors. And I think that that is what I would like to see because no one set of people are going to make the best decision. You've got to get different people on board um, to hear the views. And at the same time, there are different challenges. You know, it's not like, I mean, certain se- certain countries have different sets of challenges. It's like reducing emissions. But OK, what's the alternative? How do we make ends meet? How do people still have employment? And there are some very difficult questions over there. And again, no one government is going to solve that. So for me, I think the big goal would be to see what are the different countries committing to in terms of their partnerships and agreements and in in terms of the collaborations going forward to reduce emissions. And while we can all say that, oh, so-and-so industry is most... um, the most polluting, uh, or, or this is actually how it should be. In reality, all of those exist and they're going to exist. They're not going to be shut down tomorrow. Like, you know, so basically if we want to see these net emissions in by 2030 or 2050, which is basically the, the goal set. I would say real proper targets in terms of, you know, setting out boundaries and borderlines and saying, right, this is a, this is a red line. Like we really, really have got to make sure. And this is how we're going to do it. What's the action plan? Because often there are these amazing commitments and then no one meets them because there is no real tangible action plan. Um, and we can see the results of those across the world today for, for various sort of commitments that people have made. So I think that would be the one point that I would pick up, uh, more than I would say anything else. Yeah, it's hard. Um, I've, I've spoken with a lot of people about COP and, and previous COPs and in the last few months, and most of the commitments are already baked in. Most of the announcements have already been made from a kind of country perspective. Um, as John Kerry said, you know, this is the last best chance, basically. Uh, we have no time, um, which is quite stark. And we keep hearing the warnings you mentioned at the start of the podcast, um, you know, the red alert for humanity. Um, do I think we're going to come out of COP with a clear action plan and clear approach to actually getting to, um, to net zero by 2050 or 2040 or going, staying within 1.5 degrees? Probably not. No. Um, will we get to a stage where we can get the hundred billion dollar or hundred billion pound commitment that we're expecting? Uh, probably get close to that. Um, I think from a corporate perspective, Corporates are ahead. Um, one of the things that was interesting that came out of uh, the COVID crisis, which we're still in, I guess, um, is that you saw the reaction from business who were across the world. They reacted immediately and they got up to speed and they acted. What happened from a government perspective is there was a slow response. They went to a regionalized approach. They went to kind of, you know, take on uh, and care for their own people and not think kind of collaboratively exactly what we don't want um, in this space. So it's a tough one. Um, I think Alok Sharma, John Kerry and others um, are doing what they can, um, but with China and India and others who, you know, have big, big challenges ahead of them and who's going to pay for it um, in a time where, you know, paradoxically, there's more money available now than there ever has been in the history of time for infrastructure development. We have the European Green Deal. We have the you know, National Infrastructure Bank here in the UK and uh, the Europe. Well, the US are trying with Biden trying to get through his infrastructure plan. There's so much money available for green um, and renewable technology 
and the solutions are there and it can happen if you can figure out a way of actually receiving some of that money. Um, but there is still the other side of the fence, which is the people who are saying, well, we just need to turn off the taps today. Um, and, you know, personally, my view, I don't you know, see that that's a, an option. Um, I think there needs to be certainly a phased approach to the transformation that is required. Uh, and it is happening. Um, but are we going to be able to get there without some kind of real positive check over the next sort of, you know, eight years effectively? Um, it's going to be very difficult. Um, and there's going to be some real kind of challenges unless, unless we have some kind of, you know, amazing, uh, magical technological innovation, which kind of, you know, sucks, you know, carbon dioxide out of the air and creates, you know, clean air. Well, thank you. Thanks, thanks both for, for your reflections there on, on COP. Just as a final question be, before we wrap up, what, what sort of advice would, would each of you give for, for someone interested sort of at the start of their career, maybe just, just graduating about kind of that being able to work in, in this kind of area? If you really are interested in this space, kind of, I would, you know, advise getting early. It's competitive. You know, now everyone wants to kind of, you know, work in this space, but there is a proliferation of um, consultancies and businesses and everyone who are now more and more kind of opportunities in this space. So um, I think they kind of equal out. Um, my, my biggest thing that I always tell kind of graduates um, is try and read stuff, you know, try and kind of, you know, join webinars and then hear stuff and you'll, and you'll pick up on it and you'll start to see where the network is because that network exists between people. Um, I don't know about graduate positions per se, but that goes back to my other point um, that I made earlier. Every job has an element of sustainability in it now. Whether you're a graduate at, um, you know, GM or you're a graduate at Boeing or you're a graduate at Unilever, sustainability is embedded in your job. So you don't necessarily have to get a sustainability job in order to kind of do that because it's a part of what you have to do. The other thing that I would mention is that, you know, you have, I mean, it's much easier to get your voice heard as well today as compared to it probably ever was with, with all the networks and social media and absolutely all the groups that you have also locally available, you know, lots of local, um, online groups, social media groups that are there these days. If you're interested in it, don't be scared to put your thoughts and voices and questions out there, you know, let, let people grab onto those questions and answer them. And, and as a result, you will know which are the sort of um, organizations, agencies, or maybe even governments, you know, go into the government and make change happen because um, regulation is almost as important in some cases as incentivization and, um, you know, the private sector approach. So absolutely, I think there are people required in every level. It's it's not just, uh, you know, the doing, but it's also about understanding the law around it and how one could use that uh, in a very sort of efficient way. So yeah, just get your voice heard, read as much as you can and get your, uh, yeah, get your points across on Twitter, one line sometimes even, you know, ask a question, follow people that you think are interesting. Um, it's just not more, it's so much more accessible today than it ever was before. Yeah, Rupa, that also includes in contacting you or I um, if anyone yeah, listening absolutely, please. wants to get in touch or any hints or tips. Um, yeah, I'm certainly, my door is always open um, to help people. That's excellent. Well, well thank, thank you both so much. And I think you're right. We, we kind of, we need everyone on board and there's the space for everyone, isn't there? And, and it's sometimes just a case of being being a bit brave as well and put, putting yourself out there and and you'll then start to get the attention of people that can 
can uh, can help point you in the right direction. So I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. I just want to finish by saying a huge thank you to you both, Rupert and Adam, for sharing your climate stories with us today. Thank, thank you very, very much. much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Brilliant. Um, I'm sure listeners will agree that was a great insight into some of the ways our Leeds alumni community are working to create a more sustainable future. This has been episode one of My Climate Story, and we'll be back again soon with some more inspirational people. If you've enjoyed today's show, then please like and subscribe. And why not recommend us to a friend or even a fellow alumni or alumnus, alumna. Sorry, uh, I've done it again. Okay, we'll see you next time. Goodbye.